Welcome to Chit Chatter with Rhea, the podcast that provides information to you about the legal and political process. Now here's your host, Rhea Chattergoon. Welcome back to Chit Chatter, everyone. There is so much going on. I don't even know where to start. We're on our 67th mass shooting. It's the 46th day of the year as I record this. So, you know, again, thoughts and prayers. No one cares. That's, I mean, really where we are at this point. It's just disgusting. We just had the fifth anniversary of the Parkland shooting. Um, And with everything happening, with, with all of, there's just been a lot of death and a lot of sadness. You know, one of the things that always concern me is, do people know their rights? Do people understand their rights? My friend Joanna Seaborn is my guest today. Uh, She is my law school classmate. Um, She's also one heck of a criminal defense attorney. And if you ever ask me for a referral for a criminal defense attorney, that is the number I'm sending you um, because I have full confidence in her. She is an ex-public defender. She's also ex-military. And she's just ridiculously smart and, and understands the system in a way that most people don't. I asked her to be on a guest as a guest today um, for the podcast to give you some real life tips on how to handle the police if you're stopped, what your rights are if you're stopped. Uh, she also talks about just her journey in dealing with juries and sentencing guidelines. And it's something I think a lot of us just we don't know. And I'm including myself in that, even though I'm a lawyer, I don't practice in the criminal field. And it's just a whole different animal. Uh, So there's still a lot for me to learn. I will be learning with you. Uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. Please subscribe and recommend to your friends. There will be no podcast for the next two weeks. I am headed to Trinidad for Carnival. I need a break. Carnival is my mental break. And I will be having fun. I'm going to try to post um, lots of pictures and music uh, on the Chit Chatter Instagram page. So if you uh, are not following us, please follow us there because that's where you're going to see all the action. I hope you enjoy this interview. All right. Welcome to the show, my friend, Jana Seaborn. Good afternoon, Miss Seaborn. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you, you like, for having me on. No problem. You like how official I'm being, Miss Seaborn? So I've already told the audience a little bit about you, um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, and how you do it? Um, I am primarily a criminal defense attorney. I have been practicing law since 2005 now. Um, It's all been relegated to South Florida. I do Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. I've actually picked up some counties a little further north, um, but I like to stay in South Florida. Um, Like I said, my my primary focus has been and is criminal law. I have done other areas of the law, such as insurance, defense, and family law, but I feel like I'm a criminal defense attorney, and that's what I do. Well, that's what I know you for. But you you also have a, oh, I'm getting a little feedback here. You also have a military background. I do. I actually served four and a half years in the United States Air Force. I was a public health technician. I worked in the hospital at that point in time. And it was like a a whole different area 
of employment because it's not just the military, but it's also in medical. And I do nothing in medical at this point in time. Um, so yeah, it was a, a complete pivot. <laughs> complete well, thank pivot. you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Um, so how'd you get into law? Why'd you decide to go to law school? Oh, there's a lot of reasons why. <laughs> um, I think the, the primary reason why I got into law is that I, I really did want to make a, a difference. I wanted to change the way things were being done. Um, in undergrad, I actually, I was a, a legal studies major and I used to go to the courthouse up in Pensacola and sit and watch trials and just observe how things were done. And um, it just, it kind of infuriated me a little bit when I saw how things were happening and, you know, it really put the fire under me to want to pursue the law to, to be able to make changes, to, you know, yeah, better yeah, yeah. You and I are idealistic in that way that yeah. we thought we were going to go to law school to change the world, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> do you do you feel that there's been a change? I mean, we've been practicing um, a long time now. Uh, I'm going. I'm going on 18, so you must be going on 17. Yeah, All since right. 2005. Yes, yeah, 17. Yeah. It'll be 17 years this year. Yeah. yeah. So, do you feel that there has been any change within those years? Um. I kind of look at it now that I am changing people's lives person by person. Um, as far as the big picture, I don't feel like me by myself, one person alone, like I'm not going to be able to change the laws. Um, I can't change the way police do their jobs. I can't change the way prosecutors or judges or even other attorneys do their jobs. Um, what I can change is how I interact and help um, my clients and how they perceive the system. And, and hopefully I can change their lives, you know, by maybe giving them alternatives and second chances, you know, just a better way of doing things. I, I want people to know how dedicated you are to making a change because, and, and I didn't prep you for this, but we are going to talk about your run for judge up in West Palm Beach. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, why you decided to do it. Are you gonna do it again? You know, how do you feel about the process? Um, so I decided to run, I ran in 2020. The reason why I ran, I had, um, like I said, I'm a practicing attorney and I had been before my opponents uh, as a, a an attorney before her and it was just, Keep it clean, there keep it clean, because we're going to run again. <laughs> there were things that were going on in her courtroom that were not only just not following the law illegal, but it was just the overall atmosphere. Um, it wasn't very conducive for defense attorneys with their clients because um, there was some favoritism being shown. It was just, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't conducive for business purposes. Um, it didn't help to create that trust between attorney clients. Um, and especially when you're dealing with criminal law, um, it's already difficult for your clients to trust any attorney, whether it's a public defender or ORCC, whether they hire you, they all feel, you know, unfortunately that everyone is against them. So they feel like, you know, um, they don't really have a leg to stand on. And then when you go before a judge that, you know, doesn't necessarily hold the defense in a 
a credible position, it kind of erodes that trust even further. So um, I did, I put my name in the hat and I, I ran, I didn't win. It was an unsuccessful run, but it, it, it served the purpose in that, you know, it brought some things to light. And I think a lot of people that practice in West Palm Beach started paying more attention to what was going on in the courtroom. Some changes were made, which was beneficial. She got moved out of that division. Yes, yeah, she did. <laughs> so that was a win in itself. It was. <laughs> All right. So tell us what what kind of criminal cases do you handle? Because there is the, the gambit, right? Like, I mean, there's a huge spectrum of criminal cases. So I know people who, you know, do just robbery cases or maybe even just white collar crime. Um, what type of cases do you handle? I do them all. Okay. So for those that don't know, in Florida, they are classified into either misdemeanors or felonies. So a misdemeanor is anything that is punishable by one year in the county jail or less. Um, uh, the maximum fine on a misdemeanor is $1,000. So with the misdemeanor, you do not lose your right to vote. You don't lose your right to carry firearms. You typically don't lose any rights with the misdemeanor. Um, and like I said, the maximum punishment is up to a year. It has to be a very serious charge, you know, in most counties to get a year on a misdemeanor. Um, such cases that are misdemeanors are stuff like DUIs, um, reckless driving. You have simple batteries, assault, uh, criminal mischief. So those are misdemeanors. I do those as well. What, what is criminal um, mischief? Criminal mischief is damage to someone's property. So say, um, and I'm just throwing this out hypothetically, say you and your boyfriend get into a fight, y'all break up, and then two days later you go and you key your boyfriend's car. That's criminal mischief. <laughs> now, if the car is actually titled to you, say you and your boyfriend bought that car together, <laughs> that's not criminal mischief because that's your property and you can destroy your own property. <laughs> So there's there's so a note to self, make sure it's your own. <laughs> yeah, put your name on it. <laughs> so there's little nuances. The second tier is felonies. Um, felonies is punishable by anything more than a year in the Department of Corrections. So it's not just the county jails, they can actually send you to the Department of Corrections, and you know, there's all a whole prison system throughout the state of Florida that they can send you to. Um, felonies. There's three levels. There's a third degree felony. The maximum punishment on that is five years. Second degree felonies, the maximum punishment on that is 15 years. And then first degree felonies, the maximum punishment on that are 30 years. And some are punishable by life, such as murder, manslaughter, um, capital sex batteries. Those are punishable by life. Um, the thing to remember in Florida since 1995, um, Florida does not have parole. So if you are sentenced to life, that's life. You will be, you will spend the rest of your life in prison. Wow. There's wow. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I don't think I, and, and because I do not practice anywhere near criminal law. I mean, that's just something I've always stayed away from, which is why I call you whenever I have questions. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people feel that way. They're like, you know, if they deal or they're from other states, you know, they come here and they're like, oh, well, you're only doing, you know, you at 30 or 40 years, you can go up for review. No, 
1995, the statutes were changed. There is no longer a parole here. So if you were charged with a crime before 1995, you are eligible for parole. And they typically would do a, a parole review, I think at the 25, 30, 35, 40 year. Um, but once the statute changed, life is life. Now you worked for the state um, before going out on your own. Tell Correct. us a little bit about a, that. I was a public defender for almost eight years. Wow. Um, yeah, I got a lot of trial experience. I learned a lot. It was um, it was very eye-opening. Very eye-opening because of the clientele that I had as a public defender. I was basically dealing with people who couldn't afford to be in the legal, the legal system. So uh, in addition to understanding their circumstances, their financial circumstances, their living circumstances, it's also sometimes it was an educational issue as well. Um, I dealt with mental health, you know, people who suffer from mental health issues. So there's different levels in, in how you address your clients. And it's also, you know, different levels of how you interact to just ensure that they understand. Because I think the biggest problem with the criminal justice system is that most people don't really understand what's going on. Right. Right, right. I mean, I think, listen, some lawyers don't know what's going on, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, with with the system i know i didn't i didn't ask you to talk about this but um obviously we are up on the five-year um anniversary of parkland right and um you know the 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 shooter nicholas um cruz was sentenced to life and there was that whole trial which i'm i'm sure you watched um what are your thoughts about that um the trial wasn't really and this is I've had because I've spoken to some some kids at, at a high school um, during all of this, and they saw it as a trial, and it was in a way, but it wasn't like a trial to determine guilt. Right, and I don't think people understood that. Mm -hmm. Different when you're fighting for your life because you say you didn't do it or you know you you want them to bring in everything. That's not what happened in this situation. He pled guilty. Mm -hmm. He acknowledged his guilt. So the trial per se was to determine the sentence. And there were only two options available to him because Florida still honors the death penalty. So he was either looking at death or life. And so basically this trial that was presented that took, what, six weeks? Yeah. Uh, was basically for the jury to discern whether or not this young man who was, I don't, he wasn't a minor at the time, but he was under 21, whether or not he deserved to be put to death or whether or not he would serve the rest of his days in prison. So the state spent an astronomical amount of money to put on this trial. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't have to be that way because I do believe there had been an agreement that was reached and it was rejected by the court. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I was in court one day. So <laughs> I do, you know, it, it, I think for the public to be able to express their concerns, it was good in that manner. 
Right. Because those that were involved were able to come in and freely and publicly be able to put, you know, their concerns to rest and possibly get the closure that they needed. Um, but Florida observes Marcy's law. You know, every single victim of this had the opportunity to be at every court hearing. They had the opportunity to provide witness statements. They had the opportunity to speak with victim advocates. They had the opportunity to speak with the prosecutors. Their wishes were honored, were well known. Um, in speaking with the students that I spoke with, it was kind of split. Half of them were like, oh, he should have gotten death. And the other half was like, well, no, I, you know, I think life is just. In Florida, and they are working on <clears throat> amending this, this statute, you had to have a unanimous vote in order right. to get, they are now trying to, to change it to where you only need a majority. Oh yeah, Ron DeSantis um, is on that boat. Yes, he is. He's pushing it. He's like, all we need is eight. This is the issue that I have as a criminal defense attorney when it comes to the death penalty. <laughs> um, people who are, are put on death row, and I've been to death row, they have a private cell. Right. Um, it's air conditioned. You know, they, they are isolated. They really are. They, they you know, they, they get to go out maybe one hour a day, but they're there. And because of the appeal process, because they, they give you every opportunity. Before, like There's people on death row now who have been on death row since like 1978. Right, right. So there's an extensive appeal process before they will ever execute someone. And that's costly. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extremely costly. And, and when you sentence someone to life, they're there for life. They, you know, they but get isn't that costly as well? I mean, that's the it argument, is, right? It's not. It is and it's not. And and I say that because, like I just said, when you are sentenced to life in Florida, you're sentenced, that's, that's the rest of your life. Right. So when we're thinking about crime and punishment in the state of Florida, are we just strictly looking at punitive? You know, are we looking at rehabilitative? Are we looking at both sides of what are we looking at? I mean, if we're just going to punish somebody and throw it away, Life is worse than death. Right. So, it, you know, and I'm confused. <laughs> and, and, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, I'm confused as to what exactly is the Florida criminal justice system trying to impose? Because on certain cases, they are trying to rehabilitate and, you know, and in some cases it's like strictly punitive. And I'm like, unless a person is going away for life and or death, they're coming back into our communities. Right. And, you know, what are they doing when we just throw them away? So with that being said, I feel personally, death is far worse for this. I mean, not death. I feel like life is far worse for this young man than death would have been because he's so young. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, he, he's 21, 22 now maybe. And it's like, this is going to be your life forever. This is all you're going to know versus, you know, and if he was put on death row, at least, you know, there's, you know, I, I just, I feel like yeah. life in prison is, is far worse. If this law gets changed, right, and they move away from a unanimous vote um, for the death penalty, 
what are the implications you think for those people facing, you know, life or death for, for the type of crimes that they are facing? You think we're going to see more death sentences? I think I, mean, we'll I do. More, I think we'll see more death sentences. And um, it goes back to the theology that, hey, if you make the punishments harsher, people will stop doing crimes. And that's not so. That's not so. It yeah. is not so. Uh, Florida has mandatory minimum sentences on a whole bunch and people still, you know, it doesn't stop crime. It right. does, you know, right. obviously a, a harsher sentence is not deterrent. So yeah, I, I do think there will be just more people on death row. Well, so one of the things uh, we talked about offline um, that I wanted you to talk about on this podcast was to give people some real life advice, do's and don'ts of the world. Uh, you and I have talked about, you know, the, the, the stop and frisk laws and, and, you know, just black people getting killed by the police. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned before, we can't control what the police are doing. We can't control the training. We can't control the character. Um, we can't even control the hiring practices for some of these police departments. Right. We can sue them after the fact, but we can't control any of that. But what we can control are our actions. And I hate actually saying it because, you know, I feel like it, we're putting the responsibility on us, but right. I want my husband to come home at the end of the right. night. I want my son, you want your son to come home right. at the end of the night. And so for the people who are going to listen to this podcast, talk to me about what you can or can't do if you're stopped by the police in a traffic stop, or even, you know, walking on the street if you're stopped. Okay. <clears throat> so do's and don'ts. One, um, and, and uh, you know, this may not be feasible always. I think it's always good to be familiar with where you are to be familiar with your surroundings, to be aware of what's going on around you. Um, like I said, it's not always feasible. Sometimes you're caught in a place where, you know, you're, you're not too familiar, which is why you, you may have missed a turn and now you're trying to do a U-turn and the police officer was right behind you. And he's now wondering why you're in this neighborhood at 1130 at night. And, I, I, you know, so <clears throat> one, one is to, you know, be aware of, of where you are. Um, two, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a trick question with this, because even if you say, you know, be respectful and just, you know, be compliant, that, right. that doesn't right. necessarily stop right. a snowball from, from, from escalating. So, you know, but for the most part, be cooperative. Um, I've been pulled over by the police officer. <laughs> Me too. Um, a couple of times. And I, I, I've, I've been pulled in Martin County. And to me, Martin County is one of one of those counties where I, I try to stay out of. Right. So right. I've been pulled over in Martin County and I've actually had to, the officer came at me and he was hostile. And, you know, and I, I was polite and I sat there and I was like, you know, officer, I understand, you know, you deal with a lot of people and I understand your job is hard. 
And, you know, I said, I too deal with people on a day-to-day -day basis. And I showed him my bar card. Because I and got I, out immediately when exactly. I get stopped. I had my license and my bar card. And I showed him, I was like, I understand. I said, but I would appreciate it, you know, if we can have a civil conversation. Because at the time, I wasn't speeding. <laughs> I was about right. to speed, but I was not speeding at the time. <laughs> so it's like, you know, we spoke. And he, you know, some of his hostility melted. Some of it you know, calm down because I, I, my father is a retired sheriff. So I understand <clears throat> that they are always on an alert. Um, I think as civilians, we are, you know, we're indoctrinated with the police are here to protect and serve, right. but police officers are trained that everybody they come into is, is a possible threat. So you could be a 12 year old kid you could be uh, 35, you, you, it doesn't matter who you are to a police officer, you're a possible threat. They don't know if you're armed, they don't know if you're gonna come at them. That's how they approach everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. That's a problem when it comes down to their training because how do you, how do you effectively protect and serve a community that you see as a threat? Right. So it's, it's, it's having the understanding of where they're coming from, but it's also, you have to be able to protect yourself. If you have the ability to have a dash cam in your car, I advise you to have a dash cam in your car. Record everything, record the interaction. Police officers, in if they are acting in their official capacity are public servants, you can record them. Right. Okay, so record them. One of the issues that, I as a defense attorney has is that when uh, police officers write their reports and they can say like, especially in possession cases and DUIs, oh, I smelt, you know, weed or I smelt an unknown odor of alcohol. We don't know what they smell. Right. It's right. absolutely impossible for us to say, no, you didn't smell weed or no, you didn't smell this alcohol because we weren't there. So it's something that's like, a snapshot from this time and they can write in their reports anything. They can say so whatever they want. Exactly. And it's hard to contest that because it's a smell. We weren't there. Um, but if you have a dash cam, and I've had some clients who've actually installed the dash cam, put the dash cam in there and record, record everything. That way you can have the, the complete interaction. Because, you know, a lot of police officers come and they approach you. And they tell you, you know, do this, do that, do that. And you're like, officer, why did you stop me? Right. Uh, right. And they don't want to answer your questions. And then that causes us, most people, to get a little frustrated, to get a little, you know, and, and it, you know, that's what causes, I think, mm -hmm. uh, things to get out of hand because, you know, you don't want to answer my questions. I don't want to answer your questions. And it's like, sometimes you just have to stop and be like, okay. All right, officer, you want, here's my driver's license. Here's this, here's that, and give it to them. And they're going to go do what they have to do. Now, when the officers come back and they say, hey, can I search your car? You can say no. Right. You do not have to consent to a search. I would advise you never to consent to a search. They can, however, call for the dogs to come. But it has to be within a reasonable amount of time. They can't keep you there for two hours waiting for the dogs to come. It has to be a reasonable time for them to write your ticket before they can, you know, and what is a reasonable time? time. Uh, well, because what's reasonable to you and what's reasonable to me may be different. 
Right. There's been 10 minutes is unreasonable to me. So it's like, how long does it take for the officer to write the ticket? Right. You know, typically it has been held, you know, more than an hour, an hour and a half is too long. Okay. So, you know, just, but I think the way to avoid a lot of things is to keep a cool head is to really keep a cool head and, and understand what's going on. And I think that's the thing we, we, we want to confront and we get argumentative when, you know, but in my opinion, videos we have watched right. people with cool heads saying, you know, complying with the officers that still get shot and killed at the end of the day. Right. You and know? that's the scariest part. It's the scary part. Let me ask that's you a follow-up question about the dogs. When they call the dogs, do you have to step out of the car? Do you have to let them in the car with the dogs? No. You have to, you, they can ask you to get out. Once they stop you, they can ask you to get out the car and you can, you have to get out. Right. Okay. Now they, the dogs are just like a, a preliminary for them to get reasonable suspicion or probable cause to get into the car. So the dogs, they typically walk around. And then if the dog's somewhat alert, then they can, you know, they can then go into the car That's to search. Right. Okay. But this is one thing that I, I always say, make sure you you constantly say, I am not consenting to a search. I'm not consenting to your search. I'm not consenting to your search. That way, if anything happens, you know, you, you have a, a better basis for a motion to suppress, which is a basically your, your attorney asking the court to kick out evidence because the police did something wrong. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I always say never consent to a search. Never consent to a search. One of the things, if they are detaining you, so they haven't written a ticket, they're just having you there, they haven't allowed you to leave. Can you ask the police, am I being detained? May I leave? Yes. I would always say, am I be three questions. Am I free to leave? Are you detaining me? Am I under arrest? Say it one more time. Am I free to leave? Are you detaining me? Am I under arrest? Because if they say, no, you're not free to leave. Okay, so are you detaining me or am I under arrest? You, you need to let, let me know because at what point does this whole process kick in? Right. So that that's, you know, and typically on the side of the roads, the police officers don't want to give you too much information because they're still fishing. Right. They're still trying to figure out what they're going to charge with or what they have. I've had cases where they they stop an entire car and they they have like the entire police department trying to search this one car. And it's like, what was the purpose of the stop? I got a whole case thrown out because they never came up with a reason. They found things in the car, but it still came back to why did you even stop this car? Right. There was no basis. There's no basis for the stop. One of the things, I <laughs> whenever I see, and and I, I've done it a lot of times um, since George Floyd, if I see three to four cops surrounding a car, I will pull over at a safe distance so that I'm not interfering to observe what's going on. I actually had a situation once, and and let me for the record say, I do not practice criminal law. I had all intentions of calling you after, okay? <laughs> but I saw them, the police, 
being very aggressive with this young man. I mean, he could not mm -hmm. have been more than 23, 24. And from across the street, my nosy behind stopped the car and I screamed at him and I said, do you want, I'm a lawyer. Do you want me to be your lawyer? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he's a young black man. And he said, yes, ma'am. Within five minutes, the police walked over to me. I asked them what was the basis for the stop. He fumbled, bumbled. I said, I looked at him. I said, listen, you're barking up the wrong tree because you don't have a, but you can't even express to me a basis for this stop and you're right. detaining this young man. And I am not only going to take his case, but then I'm going to sue you and sue the department. Well, not him because, you know, qualified, yeah. but, um, and within, I would say another 10 minutes, they released him on his way. Yeah. The young man came <laughs> over, gave me a hug and said, thank you because he was so scared. Right. He was so scared. And that's something like, I tell all of my, my lawyer friends, like, listen, I know we're rushing to go everywhere, but man, if you see this, please just stop, you know, yeah. just, just even your presence sometimes assists, but it's also scary, right? Because the cops could be aggressive to you. Um, yeah. And like you said, it's just a matter of how you talk to them and, and all of that, but any other advice for stops? Make it out alive. <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, and yeah. I have a son. My son is 25. I have nephews that are around the same age. And it's like, you know, at that age and younger, I feel like they, you know, most young men, they want to be respected. They want to be heard. They want to, you know, have that I'm a man type thing. But it, when it comes to those kind of situations, sometimes it's better to just make it out alive. You don't have anything to prove at that point in time. We can fight another day if you make it out to see another day. Yeah. So for me, and especially with my son, that was the important thing. It's like, you know, they, they can be jerks. They, you know, you have to expect them to be jerks, but your job is to make it home safely. So that's going to stop having that talk. Right. I'm right. actually, and, you know, my, my, mine is seven. And we're going to have to have that talk pretty yeah. soon because yeah. it's, it's in his face now, you know? Yeah. Um, so for me and, and my, you, you, you know, my son, we, yeah. we went to law school together. So my baby was never really a baby. Right. And it's like, even when he was, you know, 13, 14 years old, he was like six foot tall. Right. So when, when people see him or saw him, they, they didn't see man. a little boy, right? They didn't see a little boy. They didn't see a 12 year old. So it's like, they always, you know, and it's like, my, my kid is a gentle giant, right. you know, he's like, eh. but to the, I guess the regular eye that doesn't know him, all they see is this, this big black kid. Right. So right. Yeah, we we had to have the talk of what not to do and what to do and how to stay safe. And, you know, it, it, it's sad that we have to do that. But, you know, if it means I get to hug my child and he gets to come home, we're going to talk. We're going to have that talk. Right. Um, so that, tell me. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I wanted to, now that we've had that advice, because I think this advice from you on how to behave and how to deal with stops can assist those of us parents with having that talk, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
Talk to me though about the other end of it. So we've got now charges. We've now have a trial, which you and I can talk about how trials go all day long because it really just depends on the judge and the jury. And, sure. and you know, um, one of the things I talk about on this podcast a lot, even from a civil aspect, is people showing up for jury duty. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your juries look like in the criminal courtroom. Um, are you really getting a jury of your peers? Not typically. Not typically. Um, so to be eligible to serve on a jury panel in the state of Florida, you only have to have a valid driver's license. So they're randomly selecting people who have driver's licenses. So one, if you don't have a valid driver's license, you'll never get called to show up for jury duty. That eliminates a large portion of people in South Florida. Um, Two, a lot of people that get jury summons don't show up that, you know, they don't show up. And then the people that typically do show up, uh, it, it, it represents a very small quantity of the, the population. Um, in doing jury selection, especially on a criminal case, it never surprises me how many people um, will do any and everything to get off of that jury panel. You know, depending on what the charges are, um, I've had I've had jurors tell me, you know, they you know they'll believe everything a police officer says. I've had jury panelists to tell me that you know because your client looks a certain way, and I was victimized by someone who looks like that, I can't be fair. I've had people who look like me. Who will show up and say, I don't believe anything a police officer <laughs> says. Um, you know, I, the purpose of jury selection is not necessarily, we don't get to really pick who we want to be on the jury. We're just excluding those people who outright can't be fair. Preach. <laughs> you know, most of the people that, you know, end up on the jury panels are people who, you know, just kept saying, I can be fair. I can be fair or they don't really get in depth with, you know, their true feelings. So when we get to these jury panels, we really don't typically. It's not very diverse because most most people of color, in my experience, who get summons, they do any and everything to get off. You know, I don't I don't trust the police officers. I, you know, I've been arrested. I've done this or my, my son is this. And they, you know, they'll give you all kinds of rationales as to why they can't sit on a jury panel. And then you have the other spectrum that regardless of what they posted on their Facebook, because we do get to pull up their Facebook page. Right. They'll say, I can be fair. I can sit here and I can do this. And it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of a skewed process because it's like in your head, it's like nobody really wants to be on a jury panel, but then there's some people that do want to be on a jury right. panel. Like, why do you want to be on this jury panel? So it's not a fair, it's not a fair representation of, of the community. You know, I can, I can count on, on maybe one hand, how many times um, I've actually had, 
an effective representation as far as a jury. Typically, my juries are, are very one-sided. Um, I don't think I've ever had a jury that I could say was well-represented, ever, on the civil end. I may have had two. Where, and when I say that, I'm like, out of seven people, I may have had two minorities. But typically, they typically, you know, for the most case, most of my juries have been pr primarily Caucasians. Yep. It's been primarily yeah. Caucasians. And my issue with that is um, I, I, I've gone out to the West communities up in Palm Beach County, which is pri primarily minorities, immigrants and, you know, African-Americans and Caribbean. So in that community, they, they, they voiced to me that, you know, they didn't feel like it was important for them to come out here to do jury duty. A, a lot of the, um, a lot of the defendants come from these communities. Right. So we have, we're, we have these juries and we're asking people who are unfamiliar with the community, who are unfamiliar with the culture, who are unfamiliar with the way people live and interact with each other to now determine a person's life based on something that's completely irrelevant to them. Um, I've had jury, I've had juries to come and, and make a decision in less than an hour. And it's like, you know, even if you you've already made up your mind, at least give the, the appearance that you're considering because this is somebody's life. Right. Right. You know so when that jury not, comes back yeah. in, in in an hour that it's just over. I mean, yeah. I've I've gotten a jury call within 45 minutes and I'm like, I look at the client, I'm like, we we lost. Yeah. And it's I like, know you know, lost. we we spent we spent a week in trial and they took 45 minutes. Right. <laughs> it's like, did did they even talk? So jury, jury service is important. It's really important because, you know, this is, we can't complain about, oh, the system is set up to just throw people away and the system's unfair when we don't participate. Yeah. Speaking of fair, talk to me about sentencing guidelines. <laughs> I've got a huge issue with sentencing guidelines, but 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 tell me your opinion on them. How do you deal with them in your everyday work? Um, how do you even talk to clients about that? Okay, so Florida, like I said, I think this probably happened around ninety five, nine between ninety five and ninety seven. They they came up with this sentencing guideline, and it was basically uh, the result of them conducting a study. And the study results came back showing that different counties sentenced people of, of different uh, nationalities, diverse race, whatever, mm -hmm. harsher mm -hmm. in certain areas than other areas of Florida. So the sentencing guidelines were formulated to try and make it a more unified sentencing structure for the whole state. So you wouldn't say that, you know, well, up in the panhandle, they're real racist and they're sending everybody to prison and down in Miami, they're letting everybody go. So that's what that that was the purpose of the sentencing guidelines. And in theory, it was it's probably a good, you know, it is supposed to be equal. However, what they do and the problem with sentencing guidelines 
is that it's ultimately a, a score sheet. We call it a score sheet. What they do, they take the charges that you, you know, the defendant is charged with. They have a primary charge. That primary charge is usually the highest level and the heaviest scoring. And then they add any additional offenses and each one is given a score. And then they consider whether or not there's any injury points to the victim, the maximum being death. Um, if there's no injury points, they don't get scored. Then they consider your prior criminal history and each, you know, each prior offense is given a score. Then they consider whether or not you're on probation or had been on probation, whether or not you successfully completed probation or unsuccessfully completed probation. Those are assessed a score. And then they add everything up. They, um, there's a mathematical equation and that's what determines the lowest score possible. And then the highest score possible is depending on what your charges are. So say you're charged with um, three third degree felonies. The maximum sentence on that is 15 years because each one is five years. But if all of your priors, if all of your priors exceeds 15 years, guess what? They can give you the 15 years or more. Mm. So that's the problem with that. But it, it kind of goes to, for me, it goes to, um, the prosecutors overcharging. Right. So if, say you actually should be charged with aggravated battery, but they charge you with attempted murder, that ups your score. Mm -hmm. And by them upping your score, when they come at you with a plea offer, you know, it's based off of your score sheet. Right. You know, right. and it's like, well, you know, if he doesn't want to play, then, you know, this is what he's looking at on the minimum up to the maximum. So I think the score sheet is abused in that it is used, especially with overcharging offenses, to try and get people to plea to charges. Because typically, you know, sometimes what a lot of prosecutors will do is they know they overcharged. So they'll come at you with a, you know, well, I'll reduce it to this, this, and this if he'll take the plea, when in actuality, he should have only been charged with this, this, and this, and then the score would be less anyway. Right. right. So it's, it's, it's still a little, it's, it's a game when it comes to the charges, you know, because, you know, they can, I've had people that, that have been charged with attempted murder when in actuality, I'm like, no, this is just an aggravated battery. And right. an aggravated right. battery has a little less, you know, a little less score, a little bit lesser. So, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of playing, you know, sometimes with the, the prosecutors and, and their charges. Um, another issue with that is that there are mitigators. So with the score sheet, the judge, and I think a lot of my clients, I have to constantly explain this to them. Everybody wants to talk to the judge. Everybody wants to talk to the judge. And it's like the judge's hands are tied. If you score, if you score 60 months, on the bottom up to 15 years, the judge can't give you anything less than the 60 months unless you have mitigators. And there are mitigators that are spelled out in the statute. So it's not like I can just create a mitigator and throw it at the judge. Right, it has to, it has to fit enumerated uh, mitigators that are listed. So I, I constantly have to tell, oh, I just want to write a letter to the judge. I need to let the judge know. And it's like, no, the judge's hands are tied. Who, who has the power? The prosecutor, because the prosecutor can change your charges. The prosecutor can bring things down. 
you can score 60 months and the prosecutor can say, you know what, I'll offer you 12 months in the county. The judge can't do that. And I, I don't think most people really understand that in the circuit court, the judge's hands are tied. Not so in the county. When you have misdemeanor cases, the judge has the ability, except for two charges. There's two charges where the judge can't alter. And that's DUIs because the, the punishments are spelt out in the statutes. And then for batteries, domestic related, the, uh, the punishments are spelled out in the statute. So other than that, the judges can't alter those sentences, but on every other crime, the judge can get involved and do some, do some things. They can, you know, you can go non-jury before a judge and the judge can, okay, well, I don't find you guilty of what they charge you with, but I can find you guilty of something lesser. Right. You know, right. court judge can't necessarily do that. So that brings me to the point where that I always make to everyone you need to get out and vote because most of the times we vote for the state attorney who mm -hmm. is managing these prosecutors and has the ability to reduce those charges, tell them how to do it, et cetera. So go, two things important that came out of today, okay? <laughs> voting and jury duty, which is, uh, you yeah. know, which are two things I talk yeah. about all the time because that is within our power to change the system. That's how we do it. Um, I could talk to you about how charges are implemented to people of different races, but I want to mm -hmm. actually save that for another podcast um, I'm, because I know we're limited on time. Um, but if you will promise to come back. I promise. And, okay. and, and when it goes back to voting, that's something that, that needs to be considered too, because, you know, especially when it comes to juveniles mm. that, they, they, you know, there's diversionary programs, you know, just because, you know, you've been accused of something as a juvenile doesn't mean the state has to bring charges. It's like, if you aren't, if your, your prosecutors are not willing to rehabilitate your juveniles, then we got a problem. Right. We got a problem. Cause you're basically saying you don't have any hope for, for the future generation and we want to punish them. No, it, it, it does seem that the system is just very punitive, right? That yeah. we're just out to, to get people. We don't listen. And I think egregious crimes deserve egre egregious punishments, but you know, there are people make mistakes in life. Right. And so, but it doesn't seem that the system allows for that. And I, something I always say is we have a legal system. We don't have a justice system. Right. And, I, and that definition, I think is something people really, really do understand, need to understand. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. I think this is going to just be a great podcast just for people to learn a little bit more about the criminal system. I'm going to name you now my criminal analyst for coming on. Okay. So, so the next that. big, <laughs> I, I like how you say it, say it, I accept, like I'm giving you a choice, but yeah. <laughs> I always have a choice. <laughs> no, but I think maybe- thank you. Maybe the next uh, big, big criminal trial that happens. I know today they sentenced the um, shooter the from Buffalo. the Buffalo. Yeah, and, and he got life. And, you know, some people are going to be on the fence with that. But, I mean, he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Right. And he's, he's fairly young. And, you know, for me, personally, I've seen too many cases where 
the state has gotten it wrong and they figure it out after they've executed someone. Mm -hmm. uh, a posthumous pardon is 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 no good to me. It's I'm like, well, yeah, you can't bring the person back. So, you know, I, I'm I not saying, I'm, you know. I actually went to an event for the Innocence Project on Saturday. I was and, there Friday. <laughs> oh, were you? Oh, I man, we should have coordinated. Um, but, you know, met some of the men who were in prison for 32, 40 right. years. Right. Before the Innocence Project, you know, really right. um, got them out. And I, I just kept looking at these men like, oh, my God. Like, what do you do? What do you do? You spent your right. whole life in right. jail. You now come out. For and something you didn't do. You didn't do. And it goes back to the jury service because there were identifications, Correct. shaky identifications, and the juries was just like, okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it's like, there's, there's tons of issues. There's tons of issues that we can talk about in the, in the criminal justice system because how reliable really are these eyewitness identifications? Right. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. I see people every day and it's like, you know, Honestly, I'm, I remember faces, don't necessarily remember names, right? you know, but some people, you know, unfortunately think a whole race looks alike. So, you know, or then they'll be like, well, it's close enough. No, you're talking about somebody's life right. is not close enough. Right. Right. So, you know, that, that one. Yeah. To, just but we're going to, we're going to talk about that on our next podcast yeah. on, on how the criminal legal system and race interplays with each other. Yeah. I'd love to do that with you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank uh, you for having me. And I look forward to our next session. <laughs> I know. I know. We do have to plan dinner soon, though. Um, yeah. And and by the way, congratulations. You told me you're getting sworn into the U.S. Supreme Court next week. Hopefully, okay. Katanji Jackson, Justice Katanji Jackson will swear me in, hopefully. Oh, my so gosh. That would just that. be awesome. That would be it's awesome great. if she did it. Um, in Black no, History big, Month. In black history month that's in right you're making black month. history yes <laughs> no i i mean it's a very very big deal so i hope you're taking it all in i expect I to am. see lots of pictures posted and uh i look forward to having you back thank you i appreciate you <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend. You can also follow the podcast on our social media pages. 